Hi guys, it's Andy McDonald, physio and strength and conditioning coach, and welcome to the Informed Performance Podcast. On today's episode, Ben will be speaking to Steve Ingham, a man with many strings to his bow. Steve was formerly the British Olympic Association Sports Science Manager, the English Institute of Sport Head of Physiology, and then the Director of Sports Science and Technical Development in support of both Team GB and Paralympics GB. More recently, Steve is a performance consultant, the Director of Supporting Champions, and a motivational speaker on high-performance teams. So you're in for a good one today. This episode of the Informed Performance Podcast has been sponsored by Vol Performance, makers of the force frame. Used by health and performance professionals for assessing and improving performance and rehabilitation, the force frame is a powerful solution for quickly and accurately testing isometric strength and imbalances. In addition to testing athletes, the force frame is also used to maintain and improve strength, offering over 130 isometric training protocols. As a portable and easy-to-use system, the force frame is designed to ensure every measurement can be accurately and reliably measured, time after time again. To learn more about the force frame, visit our sponsor, volperformance.com. You're listening to Inform Performance, and here's today's episode between Ben Ashworth and Steve Ingham. So welcome to the Inform Performance podcast. My name's Ben Ashworth. Um, I just want to take a, a quote from another Steve. And Steve Jobs said, simple can be harder than complex. You have to work hard to get your thinking clean to make it simple. But it's worth it in the end because once you get there, you can move mountains. And the reason why I bring that up at the start of this podcast is because Dr. Steve Ingham, who we're going to be speaking to, is one of the most well thought out people I've met, both inside and outside the world of sport. And when I can, I, I turn to Steve as a sounding board for my own personal development and to help solve problems. Steve's a founder, director, and performance consultant at Supporting Champions. He's a performance scientist with a vast experience of coaching and supporting some of the world's most successful athletes over a number of years. He's an author, a podcast host, and as we'll find out hopefully a bit later on, he's even a high-performance shed repairer. So it's a it's a it's a great pleasure to welcome Dr. Steve Ingham to the show. Welcome, mate. Ben, mate, that is I've got goosebumps listening to that. I'm I can't <laughs> wait to listen to this bloke. <laughs> Thank you for your kind introduction. <laughs> well, uh, it's, uh, it's certainly warranted. Certainly warranted. So you know, obviously, I, we know each other pretty well, having worked together and sat opposite each other on a leadership development course with the English Institute of Sport many years ago now. Um, But for those listeners that haven't come across you, can you just give a little bit of your background and a flavour of what you've done and where you are currently and what you're doing? Uh, Absolutely. Yeah, love to. I'm looking forward to this conversation and um, I've seen where it goes, actually. I've always enjoyed the conversations we've had as much as anything because I never know where they're going to go. So, um, yeah, my, my background is as a physiologist by trade. So blood, sweat, tears, urine, whatever I can collect and put it in a in an analyzer. I, I was with the British rowing team, I guess in the in the days where they were the, they were the only good athletes in the British system. <laughs> and um, that's not me being harsh. That's relatively factual. Um, 
so Redgrave, Pinson, they, you know, really powerful, formative influences on my background. And and the the word I would use is journeyed with them through to the Sydney Olympics, to the Athens Olympics, and that was at the British Olympic Association. Um, I went to the Athens Olympics as the sports science manager, so I was sort of leading the sports science operation for the British Olympic team then. And and then I guess I guess at that point the English Institute of Sport was very much sort of taking over the provision of sports science and medicine support, and stepped onto that bus as head of physiology uh, and then the director of science. So. I guess from 2009 onwards, although I'd led the team to Athens, there was there was hands-on work with athletes, but it was also leading teams and and I guess guess making sure that we're doing whatever we can to make sure that we're putting good work in front of athletes, you know, that quality assurance piece, but also how we develop people and and lead teams and for me, the interesting leadership challenge there was going from the London Games to the Rio Games, where winning more medals after hosting was perhaps one of the most compelling leadership uh, challenges that that I've I've worked on. So that's my my, my background. Um, I'm a I've got two two girls. Um, I'm a devoted husband. Uh, I live in the middle of England, even though I was raised by the coast. So um, that's kind of my personal background too. And where are you at right now? What's uh, where's this journey led to? Um, so, after the Rio Olympics, I I've, I set up supporting champions, and that was I suppose it was an organic step, but it was something I'd been quite deliberate about making my I guess my my own setting up my own company, setting my own destiny in some ways. I, I love working within the Olympic system and the English Institute of Sport. But I, I've always had this sort of entrepreneurial streak, um, whether that's selling homebrew as a 15-year-old to people going to the school disco, probably a little bit, <laughs> it's a little bit illegal, I don't know. Um, but but I've always had this sense of trying, I, start, I don't do that now, by the way, <laughs> stand around selling homebrew to kids. I don't do that. Um, that. That sense of, Oh, we could go over there. We could go over here. Well, that's interesting because, and and I think that creativity in my mind has has stood me in really good stead as an applied scientist, where I don't necessarily want to just conform with the known literature or concepts. I want to I want to look at the the standard deviation rather than just the mean. And when confronted with a problem, that's when I tend to thrive. And I wanted to try and see how how it would go in setting up our own business. And, and so uh, I wrote a book, How to Support a Champion, in 2016, and that seemed to catch on a little bit. And that precipitated an interesting challenge of uh, people knocking on the door t- and saying, so we've read your book, um, we run a business, we'd like to hear more. And whether that's talks or developing teams, and transferring the performance principles that we've learned so much about in elite sport and transferring those to different worlds, whether that is in education or in business in different cultures around the world or other organizations and institutions to see what might work. Um, And so that's what we've been doing for the last five years. And 
it's been it's been incredible. So we've we've absolutely loved it. Learned so much about actually running a business as well. But I've also learned from some incredible people who we would absolutely take for granted, who might be running a business or a CEO, um, grafting away, traveling the world, who are just as high performing as every any Olympic athlete I've ever worked with. That's really interesting, and and often the parallels from elite sport are you know, translated into the sort of corporate and business worlds. Is there some stuff that you've picked up that goes the other way? You know, I mean, working with these companies and solving their problems or being invited in under the hood, have you come across some things there that have influenced the way you think about maybe how you would go about working as a practitioner now back in an elite sport context? Well, actually, I think probably the biggest realisation is that I I had this quite... um, blinkered view that everything that goes on in performance sport is um is high performance and it's not um that's certainly something i've observed at different tiers within the system as a as a practitioner within a team managing teams leading teams and kind of executive reporting to government level um that if i put an idea in front of an athlete I would have filtered that idea beforehand. I would have, uh, I would have scrutinised it to see whether I think it could land, whether it could be integrated, whether they might be open-minded, what their training history might be, whether the coach uh, could be aligned to that idea, and and then there's a level of introduction, education, and then translation, and then embedding that idea to, to sort of review and test whether it would happen or not. And, and that's something, that's a flow that I would recognize from inception of an idea to developing performance gain. And what I noticed working with businesses is that they have a, probably a much higher productivity and scrutiny around those things that make the team go faster. So I think it's an unexplored area for a lot of uh, businesses, but those that I'm contacted by and the ones that knock on the door and say, um, can you can you share that with us? They are much more prepared to to make a change if need to be. And and I think that's driven by uh, the, the ultimately their performance, their their bottom line, the the, the budgets because they're starting to get much more sophisticated about making sure that they're looking after their people, but they're also doing it in a way that means that the business thrives. And that was something that we've, we created a lot of momentum around within support teams and developing those high performance teams that are supporting the athletes. But I'm not so sure that it's, it's as well represented or as evident in some of those executive teams and so for example if i if i said to an athlete look you've done too much training or um you know there's a chance that you're going to get injured you're overtrained at the moment these indicators suggest that when that the work you're putting in is not being productive is you know is a better than even chance that they'll pull back whereas if i said that in business they will they will sort of listen to that i've encountered a lot of experiences in elite sport where people just go doesn't matter just get on with it and where it's not as productive it is not as effective and brutally honest about are we being 
Are we being effective here? Are we doing what's ne- not what's needed? Uh, I've been given, you know, like big projects to work on and it's just been chucked in the bin. And that's, that's in sport where I don't think that's, um, I don't think that's clever. <laughs> yeah. It's certainly not an efficient use of, of your time. You, um, you talked a little bit there about sort of the, the, the practitioner aspect of it, you know, what, what people are doing to support um, performance. And I know, um, and we've spoken before, but I know that one of the things you're uh, passionate about is, you know, helping people who are setting out on the journey or perhaps the, the more experienced practitioners who are trying to progress themselves within their career um, is looking at how you help them to shape their their skills and their abilities to actually work in in a performance environment, whatever that might look like. So, I'd really be interested to see, um, you know, what you're doing currently in in that space. Yeah, and and hopefully, uh, relatively soon over the next couple of years, we'll start to move to the level of performance director, supporting sporting director, CEO. And and that level, primarily because I think the you can, you can create a movement from within um, where the practitioners, the support staff, the team members are the ones driving the agenda, cultural change, setting new standards. But but if you're going to be as performance focused as you can be, then you would have the leader working on that too. The the leader setting the standard and setting the conditions for a motivated, uh, empowered staff, that then you're going to move quickly. When you've, if you've got appetite from um, from the team members and you've got intent from the leadership, uh, then then that's ultimately, I guess, the, the big recipe. But what we've so the the three main concepts I think that we're trying to work with is that early career. So this is when people are just when they're studying, when they're just recently graduated, that. That people come out with um, with a deluded sense of what's required in industry, and that's me. That's my that's my nice version about it. <laughs> um, <laughs> and I will make some summary statements here, but you know, obviously there are some exceptional individuals that come out. But I tend to see that those people are are ones that made it happen for themselves, the ones that went the extra mile, the ones that learned and reflected that that kept grafting to create. A, experience opportunities and I, I would i would say that we we have a vocational skills gap that is widening and i think there are a couple of reasons without sort of getting too much drawn into that but i think the educational system is heavily focused on research repeating that research to students and that then we teach stuff that was relevant a while ago and or that has a level of control and order that means that it's probably not as translatable to the general population or somebody aspiring to to a sporting performance so you come out of university knowing stuff you know lots about what goes on in the human body or mind or gut or a shoulder in your case but we don't know how to make that happen and I just don't see how that's useful. <laughs> if yeah. you want to go and research, great. Um, but I still think the researcher needs to have an understanding of how that research is relevant to the 
to the population. And, and I don't think it's, it's getting, I th- so I think that's getting worse because rewind 20 years ago, uh, we had people who were leading degree programs because, and they were putting stuff in front of us because they thought, we think this is the best in your best interest. Whereas now it's become quite warped based on what a department looks like. And now we've got a performance industry that has moved very quickly and developed around the world whereby so and so so that those two one meaning that the student isn't equipped and a performance industry that's become much more um demanding it's grown up with performance inputs and so the gap widening so that's one area the second is when you go into a performance world that it's pressured, it's complex, it's innovative, it's it's inspirational, it's volatile, it's it's moving quite quickly. And so when then when you get over this sort of deluded bump, you then get this huge wave of doubt and almost paralysis of people who don't know what to do because it's it's suddenly become too much. And for those people, I think there's an opportunity in a development for them to actually have a higher level of confidence proportional to their experience. Um, And then finally, those people that actually want to have lifelong learning through their careers, that there's an opportunity to to feel as though sort of five, 10, 15 years into your career that I haven't plateaued. I haven't just sort of leveled off. I want to continue to be challenged and develop my expertise or my influence at a much higher level. And so that's sort of the mission, really. I, I I don't see an awful lot of appetite for educational institutions to really move on that. I think that performance teams are so busy doing that they haven't necessarily got the capacity for that additional development for those people that might be doubting themselves. And I don't see enough in terms of investing in in that sort of rich, long career. And so that's what we're trying to create. That's what we're trying to create courses, a different tone of, of support. We've got, we've got a specific community that we have that we're trying to nurture this next generation of people that will be ultimately, hopefully better than we ever were. I think that makes me uh, think about the sort of the, the issue around this, this transfer of what we learn into the, the application of, and what we do and it's something that you know you can read papers you can go on courses your more formal courses um but when it comes to actually having an impact on you know stakeholders uh coaches and players primarily within an environment or athletes if you if you're in a you know a sporting context or an environment there so what what do you propose as a kind of uh, as a solution if we're thinking about how we continue to address this gap between you know the knowledge and the application and perhaps there is an opportunity for you to give like an example of where you've seen it done the best um well i so i, I don't know i don't know about educational institutions. I think there's an employability agenda around the world now that's started to become much more prevalent. I think that's that offers me hope. Um, but the reason that's coming 
on board is because there's a metric attached to it. <laughs> Whereas before it wasn't on the agenda because no one was measuring it or that the metric has now changed. That means that it's actually important to know and to be judged on where the, where the graduate ends up. And, and so now universities are start, starting to, to sit up and notice. So I'm hopeful for that. Um, there, there's always a natural selection to this. The, the people that come and do some of our courses, for example, and pay for that themselves, that they are the ones that they're, they're, they're going the extra mile. You know, there's a cohort of people that are invested, determined, the discretionary level. You know, when, when I talk to institutions about accessing some of our courses, they say, oh, well, you know, not if, what if not everybody accesses them? I said, well, it's probably the only ones that, that do that would find it useful because it requires them to do the work. Um, so those, so there's two, two people, two sort of groups of, of early career that, so I, I estimate about 0.1% of the sports science pool in the UK are ready to work. And that's not a good, uh, that's not a good indication. Um, <laughs> No, but it's, I mean, it's not, but it's not a surprise. It's not, it's, it's a difficult, um, yeah, it's difficult to put an, a, a, an accurate measure on it, but it's not a surprise. I would like that figure to be slightly higher. And that's primarily because I want students and graduates who are interested, but don't know where to start. So I'm, I'm, I'm slightly different. I, I sort of bludgeoned my way to, to make it happen. I annoyed people. I got, I made a lot of mistakes and was willing to do that to, to get ahead. But actually what I'm providing people with is a process. You follow these steps, you go through this, this um, program of support and the probabilities of you getting a job will increase. So for example, um, one of our courses was going to be around, well, it is around interviewing. And so I could sit there and sort of say, well, in interviewing, you might get asked this question and here's an example, here's a template, da, 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 da. But rather than do that, what we've done is work with actors and uh, film director to create, recreate scenes from interviews of car crash moments where people have just, just messed up. And so, you know what it's like when you watch The, the, the Apprentice, and you go, oh, I wouldn't do that. Oh, well, I might have done that. That's sort of what we wanted to recreate because you can't mimic that. You can't practice. Well, you can, I guess. But um, it's such a rare opportunity. And so trying to find novel ways in which people not only take the course, but they have an experience with it. And one of the things that we noticed three years ago when we had our first course, which is sort of kick, is kickstart performance skills, which is sort of what the professional skills are required and how you get work experience. We noticed that people had this sort of lonely response. They've, they've invested in it. They've gone for it. And then they end up kind of going, well, now, now what? I'm not sure what to do next. I've sort of studied it, but I haven't lived it. And I didn't want our online courses to be just this sort of, solo exercise and sort of replicating the library experience, but in a different way, it's got similar, it's got a similar tone to it, but it's got very different messaging. Um, so that's why we built a community around it to say, right, you've taken the course, 
Now reflect. Now share your lessons. Now connect with someone else. Oh, here's a networking event. Here's a coach. Um, and you get a chance to ask your questions. Here's a, here's a chance to connect with me and ask my que- uh, ask your questions of me. Um, that's that's our current solution about how we work with people. Our next phase up from that would be to to potentially take cohorts, where we're it's a very structured learning uh, learning opportunity, uh, similar to what we you mentioned at the start. Actually, we go through a leadership program together. And we live it together. And it's a camaraderie that means that if we see each other, there's a, there's a little um, connection there where we go, we went through that together and and we've got a, we've got a a, a greater relationship as a consequence. So just on that, is it, is it all online or is it in person? How does it, how does it work actually the, the course? Well, yes, and at the moment it's all online for um for students and professionals that can can access that and that's that is as much driven by the pandemic. But we were doing um virtual team development before the pandemic struck, and that was simply um from a practical point of view, but also we could see an opportunity to be quite innovative in that space. Um so for example, if we were working with a business and developing their team, is that rather than it being, say, two days out, uh, team-based development, then it could be two-hour bursts, um, rather than it being constrained by the home, that we celebrate and utilize the home. So you're actually developing deeper empathy because you're able to do some exercises with, with the environment that you're actually based in. And so there's, there's a few, there's a few things that I think that, um, a lot of teams could spend a lot more time on in this virtual world. And one of those being empathy, psychological safety, team norms, for example, that, that we develop with our, our online community, but also that is such a, uh, a powerful thing to do for any team where you're creating a higher level bond between individuals and, and relationships. So that's kind of part, I guess that's one of the bigger parts of our work where we'd work with teams like Google and discovery and, and AT Kearney where they're performance focused and they're willing to have the conversations about how they get on because they want to, they want to, they want to drive forward. They want to move forward. What does that, what does that itself actually look like you know how do, how do you create that kind of psychological safety how does that how does that interaction take place what does it look like uh well we could get into the weeds on this one but the the so <clears throat> excuse me a second <clears throat> so I mean, we talked about sort of the the leader and the movement uh, or the team members um it will often be bespoke designed based on who's driving it so what we don't tend to do is work with a team to say, oh, here's our off-the-shelf training session. Here we go, da-da-da-da, follow it, and everyone's lovely. Um, we would tend to design it specifically. But you know what, Ben? This is just me using our performance brain and our performance thinking and our performance habits. We would never take an off-the-shelf product and, and um, method and just plonk it on an athlete. We would tune it. We would develop it we would make sure it lands in the right way with an athlete. Um, so, so 
we've, we're talking about behavior change here. And so behavior change requires you to be to be developing the motivation for change first and foremost. So you can't just go in and go, you need this, you need that. Um, there has to be a an aha moment where people go, you know what, I need a bit of that in my life, or I'm guilty of that, and I'm or or we we should be doing this. And part of my messaging around this, a little bit around how I wrote How to Support Champion, is me putting my vulnerability and open, honest thoughts front and center as to all part of our work. I haven't got the answers. In fact, actually, I've really worried about whether I'm doing the right stuff or not over, over the time. Because ultimately, that, that, mean, that means that other people can see that they can lower the facade and lower the barrier so that they can have a different type of conversation. And then something like team norms is one of the th- is one of the things that most teams will need to develop in any scheme of work where you're setting the standards of behavior uh, so that you can collectively work to that. And it's something that a lot of teams do where they go, oh, let's have a team away day, right? What's our charter? And they will go off and brainstorm and come back and some lovely looking stuff. And then it gets binned. Um, and, and so we work with teams to develop those norms, not just on a, a single day, but it tends to be repeated work as to, well, let's form those. And there's, there's mechanics about how you might do that. Um, but you've got to sign up to it. You've physically got to sign up to it, not in blood, but, you know, as in, if you don't agree, say, and can we actually achieve that or not? And so that's that, this, the sort of formation of the norm, which a lot of people do, but the, they don't all sign up and agree to it. And then the third layer is, so what? As, as to if somebody doesn't live to those norms, if someone breaks one of those, if someone lowers the standard of behavior, what's going to happen? <laughs> and that's the, that's the sticky bit where people go, Ooh, I'm not sure about that. And then you're going to need to make sure you've, you embed the tools as a, as an artful leader or team member about how you can have that conversation. How's that going to go? And rewarding and role modeling the, the norms in action. What would best practice look like? But then specifically, okay, well, sorry, but at some point, someone's going to break one of those and contravene them. And actually, you're going to have to manage that as a group and as a leader. And that means that's going to get emotional. And that means your heart rate is going to go. And that means you're going to worry about it. And that means it's going to be uncomfortable. (laughs) So you're going to have the tools to manage that particular storm. I remember the first time I I had to call that out in a team. I just, I was so nervous, but I knew the toxic corrosive behaviors were there and I had to call it out and it only takes a couple of times to do it in the right way that that actually it sets a new standard that everyone sits up a bit taller and actually looks around and think things are going to change and do you remember do you remember the uh the actual way you had to call that out was it a one-to-one was it in front of the group how how did that how did that you know how did that roll out uh, so I actually regret how I did it. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I'll give you the I'll give you the unpolished version of how I did it, and then I'll, I'll give you the version of um, of how I would hatch uh, a more sophisticated way of doing that. <laughs> um, 
I I learned from it and thought I th- that didn't that didn't go that well, and so I'll I'll make sure I'm developing my practice. And so so one of the one of the leadership examples that I really learned from was was somebody who managed me. At, I won't say organisations because it will start to get personal. Um, where I got belittled in front of people, and so I'm a junior practitioner, and the leaders just or the, the manager would step in front of, of me in front of an Olympic champion and say, that's not how you do it. You've messed that up. And I just sit in this soup of what are you talking about? That It just makes me feel rubbish. And I swore never to do that. Um, because, and you can imagine what I'm like, I, I took it out with that person at a different time. But um, so, so somebody's sitting there in a team meeting relatively early into a kind of leadership role and they've got their arms crossed, taking a pop at somebody else in that sort of quite aggressive conferencing manner, you know, where somebody presents and then they get attacked. And, and so I just, I just said, I, I stopped the, I stopped the, the question. I stopped the answer. And I said, we can't have that in this team. That type of behavior is going to mean that we're all blocked. We are all inhibited. We're all going to sit back and we're all going to attack, attack each other. And so I called that out with that person. And, I, and whilst I, I did it in a reasonable way, I, I, I pounced on them. And so my learning from that is that relatively early in a leadership management role, I had to be, I had to be communicating the standards that I expect. This is what I expect. This is what you'll get from me. And if you don't like the way I work, if you don't like a scheme of work, you get to talk to me about that. That's me being open and creating a safe environment to, for mistakes can happen. Um, but these are the standards I expect of you. And if that doesn't happen, this is what I'll, I'll, I'll talk to you about that. That's one phase. The second phase is, is if you've got your sort of, problem children on the team. That sounds a bit condescending, sorry. But if you've got people that you know are difficult and you know disrupt, um, that I would give them some specific attention to say, I think your influence on the team is is high. I think when you speak, the team listen. And I've got this scheme of work coming up. I would like your view on this um, so I can hear it now. And I would like your support on this in the team environment. And part of that is I don't want you to be negative about it. And I don't want you to be shooting somebody down on it. So I will be very specific about, about taking that person aside and asking them for different behaviors and being very clear in that moment. If I do, if you do demonstrate those negative behaviors, I will, I will call it out there and then. So at least gives them the chance to <laughs> to role model it, and um, without being completely. Well, so so the good thing about that, I think, is that a lot of people genuinely appreciate that from a leader. Is that they turn around and go, you know what? I've never had that in with that clarity before, so I really appreciate it. And without being too brutal, for some people, it's a crossroads at which they think you know what, I don't want that. I'm going to go elsewhere. And, and so by sort of 
I guess, a gentle social pressure where the standards move up. People think, well, I don't, I don't want to live to that, so I'm, I'm not going to be part of it, and, and they tend to move on. Yeah, I think that resonates a lot with me. The, the reactive side of leadership often doesn't work. It's the, it's the proactive stuff that you do before that the actual thing happens um, that makes the big difference, uh, certainly. I remember uh, managing someone who I think he'd read, a, he'd read an article on having the difficult conversation from Harvard Business Review. And he said, don't worry, I've got this one. I'll speak to this other member of staff about something. And then I had a phone call, uh, must have been driving at the time, and had a phone call from the person who was on the receiving end of this difficult conversation in tears. Uh, and I had to go and mop up the pieces. So yeah, it, delivering the the difficult conversation as a leader is is something that definitely is uh, not necessarily a skill, but something you have to really think about. For sure, I think it's um, it's just it, there's there's two different worlds, I and mean, I think we we can't be too hard on ourselves because we're brought up to just know stuff. We're educated to know stuff as opposed to dealing with the dynamics. But the, it's the dynamics between people that are the ones that separate the best from the rest. And the if I if I if I come back to you and said, look, Ben, you know sorry, that we need to change the protocol you're using for this, this type of screening work or this kit, uh, the way that we're going to use this kit is going to be different. You'd probably go, yeah, okay, fine. You know, you might, you might say, well, there's pros and cons to that, but it, would be, it wouldn't be personal. If I turned around to you and said, okay, your body language stinks in that meeting. Okay, that's quite an aggressive way of doing it, actually. But, um, <laughs> but it, if I... If I, you know, I was to say that, you know, I would really love to see that your body language shows more positive emotions during a meeting. If I said something that to that effect, it's personal, it's emotional, it's deeper. And I think, and I've seen it around the world in so many sports teams, so many institution systems where they just leave that stuff. They, they're not prepared to have the conversation and and still, even when you develop people, they, they think, no, I don't want to go there. I'd rather just, we don't actually progress as much. And I think it's one of the residing lessons from my time in, it, in, in the British high performance system is that, that we sort of treated it in the same way that we would do aerodynamics and high intensity training or beetroot juice we thought that that offers us an opportunity to improve our performance because if we don't get it right now during the the uh, you know the the preparation period sure as hell as that is not going to be a robust team dynamic when it comes to the pressure moments and ultimately that's the feedback from performance athletes and 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 coaches is that they instead of look we can work with these people because they know stuff but they, it's not we don't like the way they worked with us and and under the games pressure it just got found out and it just, we're just not prepared to go to London with that. So we had to shift. We had to, we had to start understanding it and therefore work with it. It's just a bit more emotive. Talking about pressure. Um, you're under a bit of pressure at the moment. You've, uh, you've sort of started out on a new initiative, setting up a, a YouTube channel. Uh, as part of the supporting champions thing in fact uh the other day i was 
trying to watch the YouTube channel whilst running around Prague, which wasn't the best, <laughs> <laughs> the best idea or perhaps what the resource was meant for. But um, yeah, talk to me about talk to me about the YouTube channel and and you know why that's there and and you know some of the difficulties you've had in in setting that up. Yeah. So it's a good question, actually, because it's not the it's not something that's straightforward. I, I jumped at, and um, I'm still preaching you watching it with VR goggles on or something. But um, <laughs> so I am on a mission to to create material content that will bring performance thinking to a wider audience. That's that's my that's my mission. I, I guess that that's what I want to commit to through supporting champions. And this started, so so uh, without going right back to the beginning of time, um, I used to get asked about, to come and present around the, around the world, international conferences about performance determinants, uh, the way in which you might use mathematical modeling to understand what's important for an event or not. And I started to, as I started to move into this idea of, personal performance um, and how we actually deliver our professional skills. I just sort of threw a couple of slides in at the end to sort of say, oh, you know, this is probably more important than the stuff I've just talked about for an hour. And more and more people would ask about that. And that then led me to blogging about it. That led me to writing how to support a champion. It led me to uh, starting up our own podcast, creating content that, that can help and support people. Um, with that spirit of, I haven't got the answers, honest, open, vulnerable, let's explore this together. And and so at every point of a blog, a book, a podcast, I have thought, this is a stretch for me. I'm not sure whether this is good. I'm doubtful. Um, from the community of people I come from, I'm probably going to get people criticizing it, um, not appreciating it. And Generally speaking, I've had a positive response. I always got to look at the negative review of how to support champion on Amazon, and, and you know I'm in the fetal position before you know it. And <laughs> so uh, we're always hardwired to worry about that 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 threat. And I just I think there's an authenticity and a tradition that means that a blog, a book, a podcast, they're sort of they're sort of for, for the wise person, you know, they'll, they'll go and go on a nice walk and have a cup of tea and listen to a podcast or there's, there's a, there's a classical element that's not too out there. And I take a bit of inspiration from Jan Lemieux here, who has effectively changed the interpretation and reading of scientific literature through his infographics. Um, and when I step back over the last few years about thinking, what's the reach, what's the level of engagement, and what's the, the, the most powerful platform to be able to communicate my ideas, for the last four years, I've been putting off going on YouTube. <laughs> um, <laughs> and, and that's very specifically front and center with a camera looking down the lens. And, uh, and there's something strange just about that. I'm talking to myself in a room. Um, and I'm talking to you down that lens, that's a real stretch for me. And, but I've just studied it for a, a good period of time now. I've learned about it. Um, and, and whilst I might not be comfortable doing it, I think it's probably the most powerful. And therefore that's why I'm 
doing it. And I, I hope it, I hope it can create a connection. I hope it can, you know, some content can be useful for people, but um, yeah, it's kind of performance determinants thinking of where do I need to be and therefore what skills do I need to develop and therefore let's do it. Well, it did. It, it, it resonated with me on my, on my run. Um, <laughs> it actually get, it actually gave me an excuse to sort of stop and walk a few times as well, which was, which was really nice on the uphill sections. Um, but yeah, the, the, the couple of ones that I've watched were the one around team kit and the one, the reason I talked about you being a shed mender earlier was around the high, high performance screws. Um, and yeah, I, I, I enjoyed that because there's quite a lot of conversation around this, you know, high performance and, you know, elite high performance and all of these kind of roles and labels and those other things. So just for those people who haven't jumped on the YouTube, I'm sure some will, and we'll connect to that in the show notes later. But um, yeah, can you t- just elaborate on that for this, the purpose of this podcast, the sort of difference between performance and high performance? Uh, I think that'd be really interesting. Yeah, it was motivated by a couple of uh, performance directors, coaches, and some some business leaders actually who brought me in to do a talk and um and with in the nicest possible way end up contradicting my main messages it, it it can't all be on all the time we just don't work like that and to think that an olympian is at their their most powerful uh, that all the time all all year round is not the case um this, I think this is a separate topic in terms of sustaining performance. And I know obviously your work in, in team-based sports and so on is, is an, another quandary working with the Royal Ballet on this, you know, that they, they have to turn out show after show after show. And, and that's a different way of working. But genuine high performance, if we're going to be fussy about it and, and understand that, that to give our absolute deliberate, intentional best and be right here deeply focused on being at our physical, mental, emotional best. That cannot happen all the time. And so if we band about this idea of performance and high performance, then to me, the differentiator are that you're, you are operating at an exceptional level or under exceptional demand or circumstances. And so I would say an equivalent would be that's relevant, the, uh, Healthcare staff, nurses, and doctors are operating under exceptional circumstances. They are they are um, delivering high performance as they care for people during the pandemic, and that's a good example in the sense that they cannot keep that up for too much longer because they're burning out. Um, they're delivering a high performance under exceptional level, exceptional circumstances, but if they keep going and keep going, that they'll burn out, and they have to invest in renewal, recovery, to be able to support that. So I think the these concepts that I'll try and share, some will be detailed about why do you do this? Why do you do that? Why might you eat that? What training is better for you under these circumstances? I just wanted to sort of set the scene as to, I guess, what is high performance? How can we think reframe when we're at our best, but also do it in a way that's a bit healthier and, and it doesn't create this this intensity and spiraling where people feel like they're in a relentless environment. Uh, when you've got really high challenge and low support in an environment, it's relentless. And 
And I, I want to try and create some content that make people think differently about how they create performance and, and actually invest in themselves a bit more. Yeah, actually, the bit that struck me was the sort of management of self in a performance environment. So, you know, when you're at a games, you need to focus on making sure you sleep well, making sure, you, you know, you manage your energy um, to be able to work at that high performing level as a member of the support team. That, that definitely resonated with me. Mm. Yeah, good. Well, we've got a few more coming up. So we'll, we'll, we're sort of creating a tranche of them in line with the Olympics and then we'll try and find a rhythm that might be, say, once a week or something. So I, I also... I also noticed that with blogs and podcasts and, and so on, that, that it's really pa- it's a relatively passive media. And so and what I've noticed with YouTube already is that, that people are prepared to comment and make suggestions. And you know what? That's the way I'd love it to be, actually, um, invo- get involved in a conversation. So I'm intrigued about how YouTube might evolve and develop, but I, I can only see it growing as a, as a, as a platform to, to create content for. Steve, you've mentioned, you know, this kind of systems thinking, determinant performance. How can people actually use that? I think that the it's something that you actually have to develop over a longer term. So it's not the sort of thing that you can probably just suddenly um, introduce and then it's, and it's up and running. Um, I, I think there are a couple of key elements to, to that, that it needs to be generated from within. Uh, so you need to create a case for for that and have those sorts of conversations about understanding. Um, I'm, I'm really inspired by the, I think uh, Baroness Sue Campbell brought this into the high performance system in the UK. I think she stole it from Michael Schumacher's uh, chief engineer. And I, I don't know where he stole it from. So it's, 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 a, it's a hand-me-down, but it's a good one. Is why guess when you can know? And that... Part of that speaks to data and understanding, so that it it starts to cut through the you know the opinion of the highest paid person on the team. Uh, you know, you know, we we'll all sit there in team meetings, and the conversation will start to rumble, and everyone will have their say, or some might not actually, and then it will rest with the person who's got to make the decision, and they speak, and then everyone goes, "Oh, I suppose I agree," um, as opposed to. Um, what's what's the evidence say? What does the what's the what's the best case scenario? Let's make sure we're having challenging views on the table. So I'd say it needs to come from um, within. the The bit that we've provided that I think is, I guess, it goes to another level is where you pref- have some sort of external audit, and you go. I've gone into a club and you spend several days, at least preferably several weeks and months with a club, observing, quantifying, asking questions. And so you have a clean external view. And the reason I say this is that whenever I've commissioned those with teams, whenever I've needed an external view, is there's always a cleanliness to it. There's always a objectivity where a lot of the stuff you know exists, but you're not prepared to write it. Um, that history, that that bias that accumulates in a team, and then I—that's where you probably need to have conversations about the tactics you're using, the preparation methods, the intelligence you're gathering. What innovation are you 
uh, developing and working on how the team works and what the culture is in an operation. Those would be the the five key areas that I would work with on a on a team or report on, for example. And and then that I think that the next phase would then be actually starting to collect some data, some information to substantiate um, some observations. And um, and you can do that in various different ways, but. Uh, undoubtedly, the determinants of performance thinking was probably one of the most powerful methods that we introduced in in the British high performance system that ultimately probably got warped into this idea of marginal gains. But it's ultimately stuff that's relevant, and are we getting good at it? And but it, rather than just thinking about aerodynamics, drag, and pedal power, we're talking here about all aspects of of things that could could map to and or enhance performance. And so you could have the best innovation team, but if culturally you haven't got the right uh, conditions or the team is not prepared to scrutinize that appropriately, then those are parts of the jigsaw that mean that the picture is incomplete. It doesn't happen. So it's just a bit of a rough summary as to how you might go about it. Steve, I could, uh, I could continue this conversation for a long time, but I'm mindful of your time. and I've thoroughly enjoyed the, the chat. Um, where can people reach out and find you? Well, um, our website is supportingchampions.co.uk. You can look me up on Twitter at Ingham underscore Steve. Um, and I'm always up for a, a conversation. I'm also on LinkedIn if people want to want to connect. But the website is probably the best place to start. Oh, and on YouTube. Yes, uh, exactly. In the show notes. we will link we will link to the show notes we'll link to the the books um and of course many other things including the website and and the youtube channel and i just advise and recommend that you 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 sit down to watch the youtube channel you don't try and do it when you (laughs) when you're on a run i think that's the best advice i can give i i'm gonna i'm gonna make a video that's unlisted that just says go on ben you can do it (laughs) (laughs) go on son (laughs) (laughs) well it'll be it won't be supporting much high performance in my running context steve but uh yeah once again look great to great to chat great to catch up and thanks very much for your time today thank you ben big thanks to dr steve ingham for coming on today's show just like ben said i could carry on listening to this conversation with steve quite happily if you enjoyed today's episode, then don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It makes a disproportionate difference to the success and longevity of what we do. So please hit subscribe to support us. If you'd like to click through the mentioned links from the episode, then head over to informperformance.com for the show notes. Don't forget, you can also contact or follow us on social media at informperformance for Instagram or at informpod for Twitter. I hope you enjoyed today's informed performance episode with Ben Ashworth hosting. Catch us next time for more performance and sports medicine insights.